Good morning, everybody. It's uh, an honor to be here and share the Word of God with you at this time. Um, I think some of us are excited for the outdoor fellowship that we'll be having afterwards. And so if you want to join us, I do believe there are instructions on how to get to Vanson Park, the area we'll be having our food and our fellowship. I believe there's like games like softball and volleyball, and there's even a zoo that you can take your children to if you wish to do so. Every year we have this tradition of where we go out and worship outside. And I thought maybe we could do the worship inside and do the fellowship outside this year. So I'm always trying something new. And I think my personal opinion, this is better because it's warmer in here. And so last year people were like, their fingertips were getting numb. But um, I think it's a wonderful thing to worship God together and then have fellowship outdoors. Um, I do make this announcement from time to time, but if you are new here or if you haven't heard this announcement before, we have pew Bibles in front of us underneath the chairs all across uh, this sanctuary. So if you want that Bible, you can open it up, turn to the sections that we are reading throughout our worship service. Also, if you want to keep that Bible or you want to give it to someone, that's yours to do so. So you can take a pew Bible with you if you, want to, if you don't have a Bible and you want to keep one, or if you think that someone else might have good use for it, please take the pew Bible and then you can share that with whomever you wish. So that is up to you. It's our gift to you as you come to our church, and we can always restock the pews with the Bibles if we run out. As we begin this time, let's start with a prayer. O Heavenly Father, whose law is perfect, converting the soul, a sure testimony giving wisdom to the unlearned and enlightening the eyes, we humbly implore you through your boundless goodness to enlighten our blind intellect by your Holy Spirit so that we may truly understand and profess your law and live according to it. Since it has pleased you, most merciful Father, to reveal the mysteries of your will only to the little ones, and since you look to him alone who is of a humble and contrite spirit, who has reverence for your word, grant us a humble spirit and keep us from all fleshly wisdom, which is enmity against you. Bring to the right way who those who stray from the truth, so that we may all unanimously serve you in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. We ask this from you, most merciful Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 30. We'll be going over the entire chapter, but in this point in time, we'll be reading the first 15 verses. And again, there's a pew Bible in front of you that you can look up this passage, and you can find it on page 235, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 15. And when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Malachites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the woman and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters 
taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Basor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Basor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God, that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we have been praying for those affected around the world through various tragedies. Uh, we do this Saturday mornings, and you can always join us in praying for the world. Uh, we also have been praying specifically for those that are, were affected by Hurricane Ian, and I hope that we continue to keep on praying for those that have been displaced from their homes, their businesses, their livelihoods that have been destroyed by this hurricane. Uh, I was reading about one account of a retired couple in Fort Myers the other day. When the calls came to evacuate because of Ian, a Category 5 hurricane, this couple remembered Irma. And Irma was a hurricane just five years ago. And a similar call had been made then. At that time, they did evacuate. And what happened with Hurricane Irma is that the water only came up maybe halfway onto their front yard. So when the call came to evacuate with Ian, they remembered this, and they didn't evacuate this time not because they were purposefully being negligent, but because they had lived in this home, this current home in Fort Myers, for 45 years, and not once had it ever flooded. But the past week, when the storm hit South Florida, they were able to see on the TV that the meteorologists were growing more and more morose, and they knew that it would be worst-case scenario for them. It was... By that time, too late for them to leave. It was too windy, the waters had risen too much, and it was rising even more. 
the only thing you could do, and what they were seeing on TV was even these reporters could only be vertically evacuated. For this couple, there was only one thing you could do, find higher ground. But for this particular couple, there was no higher ground to get to. Uh, they had an attic, but it was already full, uh, like occupied with things of their house from before, so they couldn't really make space in the attic in time. Uh, besides, if they went to this attic in their house, there were no openings, so they could very well uh, suffocate. So they thought the only way to survive now was to leave. And the waters were getting higher and higher. It got so high by the time they thought they needed to get out, they couldn't open the front door. They tried slamming into the front door, but to no avail. And they tried opening the windows, but previously they had stormproofed those windows, and these windows wouldn't budge. But then they were able to remember, oh, there's a kitchen window. They went to the kitchen window, and they had managed to open it a little bit. But Bruce, the husband, had Parkinson's, and he wouldn't have been able to climb out through the kitchen window. But for some miraculous reason, a chair from the living room had swept into the kitchen, so he was able to step on the chair, get out through the kitchen window as the waters were rising in their home. They made their way out, and what they did was they tied themselves to the front porch. The front porch had a lanai, so they were able to keep somewhat protected from the weather and the elements. However, even though they were at the front porch now, the water kept on rising until it reached the chin of Bruce, and Bruce was six foot six inches tall. The wife, Peggy, was thankful at that time. She, she, she uh, recalls that she's 5'11", but she had to keep on her tippy toes and keep on bouncing to keep her head above water. But that time, the water kept on rising so quickly and so high, she had to lodge her legs in between the wall and the door just to stay afloat. And if you read their account, there were a lot of prayers that were lifted up that day. But when the waters rose and that she had to prop herself between the wall and the door of her house, this, is what, this was her prayer. It was just simply, please God, help us. The waters finally stopped rising, and when it started to recede, they could see the top of their SUV. And so they knew if they stayed where they were, they would probably freeze to death and die or die of hypothermia. That's when they noticed across a few um, uh, distance, they, they noticed a neighbor actually had a house that had two floors. And so, so they were starting to make their way to this neighbor's house. And they were amazed at that time that none of the debris that was flying past them hit them. They made their way there. And as they made it to the home, Peggy, who was the wife, couldn't stop saying to the neighbor, God bless you, over and over again. And so they and 20 other neighbors stayed at that house until help came. And there are many other amazing details to this particular story that I didn't mention, like you could read this account if you wanted to, like a dove would randomly land on Bruce's shoulders because it was too tired to fly and I suppose his shoulders were the only thing stable in the storm. And so when the dove was able to gather itself again, then it would fly away. There are a lot of things that happen. But reading the account reminded me of David's account. 
And it just seems like back to back, there's always something happening to David. If it's not one thing, it's another. And if it's not this thing, it's getting worse here. And so as we read this chapter, and as we have been reading 1 Samuel, how relieved David must have felt when his men finally were able to leave the battle of the Philistines and go back to their own people, back to their own homes. But when they go back, that relief quickly turns to grief. So I have about five points for you this morning. Some points are shorter or longer than others. But the first point is out of the frying pan. Out of the frying pan. That's from verses 1 to the first part of verse 6. In this section, we're given a bird's eye view of what is happening. We're able to see even before David realizes things that are happening. So we know that what has happened, the Amalekites raided the city. They took all the women and children and burned everything to the ground. David comes back home to find the very things that we are told of in verses 1 and 2. All their wives and children are taken captive. Everyone knows why you wouldn't kill the women and children. It's because the Amalekites, it's not because the Amalekites were trying to show some kind of mercy. Remember, it was David and his men that were going around killing all these other people too, including the Amalekites. But by taking women and children captive, what they would do is they would even turn a greater profit. You would be able to sell them as slaves. And so there was only one thing to do when they realized all their wives, all the women and children were taken. They wailed and they wept. And that's what they did. There's only one thing you could do, and that's what they did. You see, men went out into the battlefield so that they could protect their wives and children. And so one doesn't need to try hard to understand the destitution and despair that they must have felt. They wailed and wept until, it says, they had no more strength to wail and weep. Oh, how they must have looked forward to finally returning home to their families. Ziklag, from where they were before, is a 60-mile journey. They escaped the Philistines to come all this way back to a burning rubble of a former city. It was out of the frying pan and into the fire. This is way worse than before. We kept on seeing a crescendo of worse things happening. But this takes the cake because they were fighting to keep their families alive. So it's no surprise that when the grief that they had would start to turn into bitterness, who's responsible for this? Who is the leader? And of course, that leader is David. So what happens when you face more than you can handle? You know... If you go to certain stores, you can sometimes find various signage for the home. Uh, like when you enter mine, there's a sign that says, bless this home and all those who enter. It's like a home sweet home kind of sign you would hang on your front door. You can also find other sayings and platitudes on these wooden blocks. They're written on these wooden blocks. And I saw one the other day that said, God will never give you more than you can handle. God will never give you more than you can handle. But the person that wrote that probably never read the Bible. Because as it seems for God's servants, 
there's always, almost, invariably, they're given more than they can ever handle. And that's the realism of the Bible. The realism of the Bible, it doesn't sugarcoat, it doesn't take back, it doesn't give you a rated G version or even a PG version of things. It gives you reality. And the reality is that we are always given more than we can handle. We can be given surges of trouble that would overwhelm us, threaten to drown us, water up to our chin, hypothermia, death. The Bible does not give us half-truths about reality. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. Even Jesus in John chapter 16, verse 33 says, In this world you will have tribulation. In this world you will have tribulation. The Greek word for tribulation is phlipsis, which is tribulation, affliction, suffering, anguish, and trouble. It's you will have anguish. You will suffer. Not you may, but you will. You will always be given more than you can handle. However, Jesus just doesn't end the statement with just that. He says this in verse 33. I'm going to read the complete verse to you. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The next point is God's sufficient grace. God's sufficient grace. That's from the latter part of verse 6 to verse 9. So David is in a bind. The men that he had journeyed with, these soldiers that he fought side by side with, risking their very lives with every battle through all the elements of the weather and the desert wilderness, every up and down from Saul chasing them to kill them to hiding their true identity from the Philistines. It's these soldiers that said, this is the last straw. Now there's even talk about stoning David. They're done with him. I'm done. But what comes next is the key part of this passage. What would you have done if this happened to you? Would you try to talk your way out of it? Plead with reason? Or even promise, maybe you'll act like a politician, promise that you'll find their families, even if it would cost you your life. It says, however, in the Bible that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And so what does it mean to strengthen yourself in God? Well, let's go over first what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that David casted some enchantment or spell to get stronger. He didn't think it was an instantaneous fix that would happen right away when he would strengthen himself in the Lord his God. Sometimes we are tempted to think that, though. When we pray, we want a quick fix. The pressure is on. You feel that pressure, so you want it alleviated right away. We have pain, and we want a pain reliever to take it away instantaneously. But the Lord is not a genie where you get wishes instantaneously. And speaking of genies, do you know what I find interesting Every good genie story shows us that wishing these three wishes are never that simple anyway. And yet, when we pray to God, a lot of times we expect genie-like responses. We think God will say, you want this? Done. What's your next wish? 
You see, Jesus is not your best buddy who will just do things for you like a good sidekick that you want him to be. Strengthening yourself in the Lord is not this. Secondly, strengthening yourself in the Lord isn't merely just having a venting session either. God isn't just some soundboard you can vent at and then you can turn around saying how good it was to get it off your chest. I suppose you can have friends that you want to do that with, but strengthening yourself in the Lord isn't just letting your emotions out. Rather, remember that they already did that in verse 4. You see, now with modern psychology intertwined with pastoral counseling, some counselors might even suggest that the main thing that you do is let it out to God. God can handle your pain. Look at even the psalmist, they might say. Didn't they pray without holding anything back from God? And the answer is yes, they did. But while venting and letting out your emotions in prayer and before God is something that they did, that's not all they did. I would go even as far as to say that's not the main thing that they did. Because you can vent and cry out to God and still not strengthen yourself in the Lord. Because these verses, this verse in particular, can be set up against and contrasted with Saul in chapter 28, verse 15. I would remind you what that says there when it says, Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. I don't think Saul held back anything in that scenario, but he did not strengthen himself in the Lord. You can let out all your emotions, David's men did exactly that as well. You can be true to yourself even in front of God, but still not strengthen yourself in God. So how do you strengthen yourself in the Lord? I think there are at least two clues in the text that provide us in helping us understand what it means to strengthen ourselves in God. First, the Hebrew word for strengthen is from the word yitkazek, which also means to press on, press on. So to strengthen oneself in the Lord is not a one-and-done kind of deal. Just because you show up to church on a Sunday doesn't necessarily mean you'll have a good, easy week. To press on means to continually rely on God. And that's what people of faith do. They press on. Saul only went to God when he needed something. He was in a bind, and only when, it was he, when he was in a bind, he would go to God. However, David had a continual relationship with Yahweh, God, and when things got tough, what David would do is press on even further. That's the first clue. The second clue is the word his. David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. How do you begin to strengthen yourself in God? You begin by recognizing that God is a personal God. You know, it's not that easy to say that there is a God, actually, who created the universe. 
There is a God somewhere. That's, that's not that hard to say. That's not even that hard to think. That's not that hard to reason. There is a God, and I like maybe his conservative values. The world is going crazy. I like the Judeo-Christian principles you Christians have. I like it. However, you don't like the God who all this value stems from. But for David, it was his God. When David wrote one of the most famous psalms out there, how did he start Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. Why is this significant? Well, if I were to lose my city, if I were to lose my home, my wife, my children, and there's nothing anymore that I could say my of, I I don't have any more of my's, I can still say my God. It's assured to me and promised to me in his word. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Even when David lost the ability to say my to any of his possessions, he could still say my God because that is where the strengthening begins. David knew he needed then God's word. So he took Abiathar the priest and an ephod and inquired of the Lord. When you have your God, you have access to God through his word. In the Old Testament, they needed a priest to commune with God However, do we need priests now? No, because we have Jesus, the great high priest. In Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We have Jesus, and his grace is sufficient. Next point is God's providence, verses 10 to 15. God tells David to pursue. Go after them. At this point, David doesn't even know who he's chasing. But he's to go after them anyway. And as they are chasing, I don't know where they're going. I don't think they know where they're going. There are about 200 out of the 600 men that are left in Basor because they're just too exhausted to continue. And I don't blame them. You know, it may be difficult even when you know the goal that you're supposed to head to, you know, if you're on the treadmill or if you're running outside, there's a destination, there's a goal. And you're like, I'm going to run three miles or I'm going to run for 30 minutes or whatever the case is. Imagine you're just told to run. Just run without a destination or time limit. You would tire in just a few miles. I would probably tire in a few feet, but you would tire in just a few miles. And so they make it to Basor, and Basor is 15 miles south of Ziklag. And so after they leave the 200 exhausted men with the luggage, they leave Basor, and what happens is they find an Egyptian man. This is God's providence. This is God's providence in verses 10 to 15. He severely dehydrated, 
He didn't eat or drink anything for three days. And so after drinking water and eating some food, they ask him where he's from and what group he belongs to. The Egyptian tells David everything. He's a slave of an Amalekite that got sick, and his master just threw him away. They had gone on various raids, including the places that belonged to Israel and including Ziklag. Finding this Egyptian slave wasn't simply mere coincidence. Besides, there are no such thing as coincidences. We only say something is a coincidence when we don't understand how it is brought about. Like if you happen to bump into someone on the street that you know, you might say, what are the chances of bumping into you here? Or what a coincidence bumping into you here. But chance or coincidence has no power on its own to manipulate anything. God is the one with the power to move things. And it was by his providence that they would stumble upon someone who had the exact information they needed. Bumping into the Egyptian wasn't by chance or coincidence. It was by the power of God. And while bumping into a random Egyptian man may seem like a small thing, in the larger picture we see that it is an essential thing because we are to understand God's providence is essential to the follower of God. The next point from verses 16 to 25 is complete victory. Complete victory. By the time they catch up with the Amalekite raiders, it wasn't hard to defeat them. They were busy eating and drinking and dancing and partying. They had so much plunder, they couldn't help but to celebrate, perhaps a little too early because they couldn't lock it down. But David and his men were able to strike them down from twilight to the evening the next day. David's recovery of the stolen possessions is written in emphatic terms. It was a complete recovery of what was lost. Verse 19, it says, Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. So David brings all these things back, and as he's bringing them back, he also goes to Basor, where he left the 200 exhausted men. And the narrator shows us what we are to think about the men who will say the following words in verse 22, because they say this, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away with his wife and children and depart. The writer says the men who said this were wicked and worthless fellows. Wait, what's wrong with that statement, you might wonder? Well, they didn't go and fight. They stayed behind and just watched some luggage. Why should they get the same amount of spoils? Is this a plug for communism? No, it's not communism for a number of reasons. First, he's not taking what he had and redistributing them. That's communism. But even if he had, this is a one-time event. David didn't run Israel by redistributing goods. And thirdly, it's not communism because communism is theft and theft is evil. And to that, some people might respond, oh, you're just a naive capitalist and you think capitalism is an intrinsic good. And the answer to that is no, I don't. I don't think that. You can be a good person in a capitalistic society. You can also be an evil person in a capitalistic society. However, in communism, you have no choice because the government dictates to you what you do with your goods. But if we are to stay on this point, I believe we will be missing the main point. The main point 
is that David's rationale isn't primarily concerned with government distribution and the politics surrounding it. David's main concern is theological. In verse 23, he tells his brothers that it is the Lord that gave him all this. The reason why they had this complete victory was because of sheer grace. Now, David's theology is important to understand because it's not about tilling the ground and keeping what comes out from it. This is about what God just handed over to them out of sheer grace. David is able to discern then what was given through him through standard work and what is clearly a supernatural event, the results of which he did not deserve to any degree. But what this theology leads to is a heart of generosity. Now, when one starts to realize more and more about how everything is given to us by God, what does that do? That leads us to a generous heart. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do we have that we did not receive? Understanding this deeply will lead the believer to share his goods out of his own free will with his brethren and to worship God in gratitude because the complete victory is won by God. And last point is this from verses 26 to 31. My cup overflows. My cup overflows. There was more than enough for David and his men. David understood what he ought to do then with the excesses. With the excesses, he did not hoard it, not even with his men, but their overflow extended beyond even his immediate vicinity. There's no doubt that these also other cities suffered from Amalekite raids, and David attaches a very nice note with every gift that is sent to his friends, the elders of Judah. He says, here is a present from me, for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. David understands that even what belongs to the enemies of God will be used in ultimately enriching God's people. You can't outdo God. You can't outsmart him. You can't overcome him. Even the enemies of God, the things that belong to them will be used as spoil for God's people. And so this bounty is extended to his brothers in nearby cities. And with its extension, David enriches those that are around him. I think that's a sign of a follower of Christ. The immeasurable riches of Christ have been given to us. The spiritual gifts have been given to his church in abundance. And in that overflow, we can share its goodness with our nearby brothers and sisters. With the invention of vehicles in modern day and the internet, we can even do more than our vicinity. We can go around the world. And this is what we want to do as well. We want to take time to pray for those of our brothers and sisters who are around the world suffering in other nations. Because in the Christian life, it's out of the overflow and gratitude that we serve. You know, we work, Christians work hard not to appease God. You see, God has already been appeased by Jesus Christ's sacrifice. He has already been appeased. So if you look at throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament stories, what happened first? Did the 
Israelites have to worship God first, and then they got saved from Egypt. You saw that famous movie, Moses, I don't know, those cartoon movies with Moses, or if you're older, like me, you saw Ten Commandments. Anyway, Charles has that. But um, what happened first? Did God say, worship me and serve me, and then I'll save you from the Egyptians? Or did he save them from the Egyptians so that they could worship God? In Ephesians chapter 2, it says something important, that we were saved not by works, but because of his grace. We are saved first so that we can do good works. This is the difference between every other ideology, religion, thought across the world, and the free gift of grace that we have received as Christians. God saves us so that we can do good works. It's out of the overflow of gratitude we can worship him and serve him. And so more than any other gift that we have received, and we have received a lot of gifts, more than anything, we have been given the precious gift of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came to die for sinners. And the call is for those that hear this good news now to leave their life of sin and turn to Christ. When you turn to Christ in faith, Christ's complete victory over death is given to those who believe and follow him. Our chant alongside with the other saints will be, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You know, there is a saying that in life you can be stuck in between a rock and a hard place. That's life, because you will be given more than you can handle. That's guaranteed. The question is, what will you do then? Will you give up? Will you just die? Will you put your head down and pretend like nothing is happening? Or will you be found in Christ, the solid rock? When you have faith in Jesus Christ, His work gets imputed. That means his work gets given to us and we are given to him. You know, Martin Luther, he realized something about marriage that blew him away. He realized this marriage that you have between a man and a woman, where it says in Ephesians chapter 5, that it points to Christ and the church. So if you've never heard that before, it's in Ephesians 5. It's saying a marriage between a husband and wife Ultimately, what it does, it, it points to the mystery of the union between Christ and his church. That's us. And he was flabbergasted because what does that mean in marriage? What happens is whatever is the wife's is given to the husband. And so what do we have to bring? We have nothing to bring except our sin, our weaknesses, our failings, our shortcomings. But Christ takes that. But what are we given? We are given his perfection. We are given his strength. We are given his gifts. And Martin Luther, realizing more and more what we have been given in the union of Christ, he was blown away. It's not that we deserved it. It's as if a king would go out and he would find a peasant not worthy at all, but decides to fall in love with the peasant and marry her. That's us. And understanding this, we understand that 
We did not deserve Christ. We didn't deserve the blessings that we have. However, because of God's sheer grace, we have been given these immeasurable riches of Jesus Christ. And so our cup overflows. And so that is the question I hope that you will leave with today. What will you do then when you get stuck in between a rock and a hard place? The Bible calls us and gives us the good news. You can be found in Christ, the solid rock, our Savior and Lord, and win from Christ that complete victory. Praise be to God for his grace, and praise God for opening the eyes of those that can see the truth. And We worship him with all of our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that you have shown us the truth. And now as we respond to the truth in worship, oh God, I pray that you would minister to the hearts that you have set aflame, that you have convicted of their sins. And Lord, now as they are convicted of their sins, help them by your power to return, to turn to you, repent, and follow you daily. Lord, we give up our lives to you, asking that you would lead us, that you would lead this church until we see you face to face from eternity to eternity to stand, to stand along with you, worshiping you and living in joyous, everlasting life. Let's take this time to pray. And as God has exhorted us in his word, let's reflect on what he has shown us. Let's remember what he has given us. And let's reflect it in thanksgiving and praise and gratitude and prayer. Let's pray.